Lesson 8. The Wolf. The Wolf. The Case of Robert. Theory of the Superego. The Core of Speech. In the course of our dialogue, you have been able to get acquainted with the ambition which rules our commentary, namely that of reconsidering the fundamental texts of the analytic experience. The moving spirit of our excavation is the following idea. Whatever, in an experience, is always best seen, is at some remove. So it is not surprising that it should be here and now that we are led, in order to understand the analytic experience, to begin again with what is implied by its most immediate given, namely, the symbolic function, or what in our vocabulary is exactly the same thing, the function of speech. We rediscover this, the central domain of analytic experience, signaled throughout Freud's oeuvre, never named, but signaled at every step. I don't think I am pushing it when I say that that is what can be immediately translated, almost algebraically, from any Freudian text. And this translation yields the solution of a number of antinomies which become apparent in Freud with that honesty which ensures that any given one of his texts is never closed, as if the whole of the system were in it. For the next session, I would very much like someone to undertake to give a commentary on a text which exemplifies what I've just been saying. This text is to be found between remembering, repeating, and working through, and observations on transference love, which are two of the most important texts in the collection of papers on technique. I am referring to On Narcissism, an introduction. It is a text that we cannot but bring into our course as soon as we have touched on the situation of the analytic dialogue. You will agree with that if you know the further implications of these terms. Situation and dialogue. Dialogue in inverted commas. We tried to define resistance within its own field. Then we formulated a definition of transference. Now, you will be well aware of the great distance which separates resistance, which keeps the subject from this full speech, which analysis awaits from him, and which is a function of that anxiogenic inflection constituted in its most radical mode at the level of symbolic exchange by the transference from this phenomenon which we handle in a technical manner in analysis and which seems to us to be the driving force, as Freud put it, of the transference, namely love. Note, 1915, Kazamatevarka, 10, more details in the note. End note. In observations on transference love, Freud did not hesitate to call the transference by the name love. Freud is so little concerned to evade the phenomenon of love, of passionate love, in its most concrete sense, that he goes so far as to say that there is no really essential distinction between transference and what in everyday life we call love. The structure of this artificial phenomenon, which is transference, and that of the spontaneous phenomenon we call love, and more specifically, passionate love are, on the plane of the psyche, equivalent. 
On Freud's part, there is no evading this phenomenon, no attempt to dissolve this capris into something symbolic in the sense in which it is usually understood, the illusory, the unreal. Transference is love. Our inquiries are now going to center on transference love to wind up our study of the papers on technique. This will take us to the heart of that other notion which I'm trying to bring in here, without which, what is more, it is not possible to arrive at a judicious apportioning of what we deal with in our experience, the function of the imaginary. Don't get the idea that this function of the imaginary is absent from Freud's texts. It is no more so than the symbolic function. Freud, quite simply, didn't place it in the foreground and didn't call attention to it everywhere it can be found. When we come to study on narcissism, you will see that Freud himself, in order to specify the difference between dementia precox, schizophrenia, psychosis on the one hand, and neurosis on the other, comes up with no other definition than the following, which may perhaps seem surprising to some of you. A patient suffering from hysteria or obsessional neurosis has also, as far as his illness extends, given up his relation to reality. But analysis shows that he has by no means broken off his erotic relations to people and things. He still retains them in fantasy, i.e. he has, on the one hand, substituted for real objects imaginary ones from his memory or has mixed the latter with the former. Remember our schema from last time, and on the other hand, he has renounced the initiation of motor activities for the attainment of his aims in connection with those objects. Only to this condition of the libido may we legitimately apply the term introversion of the libido, which is used by Jung indiscriminately. It is otherwise with the paraphrenic. He seems really to have withdrawn his libido from people and things in the external world without replacing them by others in fantasy. This simply means that he recreates this imaginative world. When he does so replace them, the process seems to be a secondary one and to be part of an attempt at recovery designed to lead the libido back to objects. Quote, 1914, More detail is in the note and note. Here we come to what is the essential distinction to be drawn between neurosis and psychosis as to the functioning of the imaginary, a distinction with Schreber's analysis, which I hope we will be able to start before the end of the year, will enable us to consider in greater depth. For today, I will yield the floor to Rosine Lefort, my student, here on my right, who, as I heard yesterday evening, presented her observations on a child whom she had spoken of with me for a long time, to our subgroup dealing with the psychoanalysis of children. It is one of those serious cases which leave us with a great feeling of unease as to the diagnosis and in a considerable quandary as to the nosology. But at all events, Rosine Lefort was able to penetrate deeply, as you will be able to see for yourselves. Just as we started off two lectures ago, 
with Melanie Klein's observation, today I yield the floor to Josine Lefort. She will open up, insofar as time permits, questions to which I will provide answers, which may well be included next time in my discussion entitled Transference and the Imaginary. Dear Josine, tell us about the case of Robert. 1. The case of Robert, Mademoiselle Lefort. Robert was born on 4th of March, 1948. His past history has been reconstituted with some difficulty, and it is in large part owing to the material brought up in sessions that it has been possible to learn of the traumas he suffered. His father is not known. His mother is presently confined as a paranoiac. She kept him with her up to the age of five months, moving from house to house. She neglected his essential needs to the point of forgetting to feed him. She had to be continually reminded to care for her child, washing, dressing, feeding. We have established that this child was so neglected as to suffer from hunger. He had to be hospitalized at the age of five months in an acute stage of hypotrophy and wasting. Scarcely had he been hospitalized when he suffered a bilateral otitis, which necessitated a double mastoidectomy. He was then sent to Beauparquet, a children's hospital in Paris, whose strict prophylactic practice is well known. There, he was isolated and fed on a drip on account of his anorexia. He came out at nine months and was returned almost by force to his mother. Nothing is known of the two months he then spent with her. We pick up his scent again after his hospitalization at 11 months, when he was again in a state of acute wasting. He was definitively and legally abandoned five months later without having seen his mother again. From that time up to the age of three years and nine months, this child underwent changes of residence 25 times, passing through institutions for children or hospitals without ever being placed in a foster home, properly speaking. These hospitalizations were made necessary by childhood illnesses, by an adenoidectomy, by the neurological, ventriculographic, electroencephalographic examinations he was given. Result, normal. Health and medical evaluations were made indicating profound somatic disturbances, and then the somatic ones having been improved upon psychological deterioration. The last evaluation at Donfer, when Robert was three and a half, suggested that he be confined, which could only have been definitive on account of an unclearly defined parapsychotic state. Giselle's test gave an IQ of 43. So he arrived at the age of three and a half at the institution, the unit at the Donfer repository where I undertook his treatment. At that time, he was in the following condition. From the point of view of height and weight, he was in very good shape, except for chronic bilateral autorrhea. From the standpoint of motor activity, he had a swinging gait, extreme lack of coordination in his movements, a constant hyperagitation. From the point of view of language, complete absence of coordinated speech, frequent screams, guttural and discordant laughter. He yelled the only two words he knew, miss and wolf. This word, wolf, he repeated throughout the day, so I nicknamed him the wolf child because that really was the image he had of himself. 
From the point of view of his behavior, he was hyperactive, continually prey to jerky and disorderly movements without aim. Unorganized, prehensive activity, he would throw his arm out to take hold of an object, and if he didn't reach it, he couldn't correct it, and had to start the movement all over again from the beginning. A variety of sleeping problems. With this permanent condition as a background, he experienced convulsive fits of agitation without any true convulsions, with reddening of the face, piercing howls, during each of the routine moments of his daily life, the pot, and above all the emptying of the pot, undressing, feeding, open doors, which he couldn't stand, likewise darkness, other children's yelling, and as we will see, moving rooms. Less often, he had crises of diametrically opposed sort, in which he was completely prostrate, staring aimlessly, like a depressive. With an adult, he was hyper-agitated, undifferentiated, without any true contact. Children he appeared to ignore, but when one of them screamed or cried, he went into a convulsive fit. In these moments of crisis, he became dangerous, he became strong, he throttled other children, and he had to be kept isolated during the night and at meals. At those times, he betrayed neither a hint of anxiety nor any emotion. We didn't really know what category to put him in, but we tried to treat him nonetheless, though we did ask ourselves if anything would come of it. I am going to tell you about the first year of treatment, which was then discontinued for a year. There were several phases in the treatment. During the preliminary phase, he retained his everyday behavior, guttural screams. He would arrive in the room running without stopping, howling, jumping in the air, and crouching down, putting his head between his hands, opening and closing the door, switching the light on and off. With objects, he would either take them up or hurl them aside or pile them on top of me. Very marked prognathism. The only thing I could extract from these first few sessions was that he did not dare go near the feeding bottle containing milk or coming somewhat closer to it would blow on it. I also noted an interest in the wash basin, which, when full of water, seemed to spark off a real panic attack. At the end of his preliminary phase, after one session, after having piled everything on top of me while in a very agitated state, he bolted, and I heard him at the top of the staircase, which he didn't know how to go down by himself, saying in a pathetic voice, in a very low tone, for him unusual, mommy, looking into the emptiness. This preliminary phase came to an end outside the treatment. One evening, after going to bed, he tried to cut off his penis with a pair of plastic scissors while standing on his bed in front of the other terrified children. In the second part of the treatment, he started to reveal what wolf meant to him. He would scream it all the time. He started one day by trying to strangle a little girl whom I had in treatment. They had to be separated and he was put in another room. He had a violent reaction and was intensely disturbed. I had to come and bring him back into the room where he normally lived. As soon as he was there, he howled, wolf, and started to throw everything across the room. It was the dining hall, food and plates. In the days that followed each time that he passed by the room where he had been put, he howled. 
wolf. This also clarifies his behavior towards doors, which he couldn't stand being left open. He spent the time of the session in opening them so as to make me close them again and howling wolf. At this point, we should recall his history. The shifting from place to place, the rooms, were for him a destruction, since he had never stopped changing places, nor adults. It had become a real principle of destruction for him, one which had intensely marked the primitive manifestations of his activity of ingestion and excretion. He expressed it mainly in two scenes, one with a feeding bottle and the other with the pot. He had at long last taken to the bottle. One day, he went to open the door and held out the feeding bottle to an imaginary person. Whenever he was alone in a room with an adult, he carried on behaving as if there were other children around him. He held out the bottle. He came back, tearing off the teat. He made me put it back on, held the bottle outside again, left the door open, turned his back on me, drank two gulps of milk, and facing me, tore off the teat, threw back his head, covered himself in milk, and spilt the rest over me. And, seized with panic, he fled, unconscious and blind. I had to pick him up from the staircase which he'd started to roll down. At that moment I had the impression that he had swallowed the destruction and that the open door and the milk were linked. The scene with the pot, which followed, was marked by the same destructive character. At the beginning of the treatment he felt obliged to do his business in the session, thinking that if he gave me something he would keep me. He could only do it pressed against me, sitting on the pot, holding my apron in one hand and the bottle or a pencil in the other. He would eat before and especially after. Not milk, but sweets and cakes. The emotional intensity betrayed great fear. The most recent of these scenes clarified the relation for him between defecation and destruction through changes. In the course of this session, he had started to do his business seated beside me. Then with his poo beside him, he leafed through the pages of a book, turning the pages. Then he heard a noise from outside. Crazed with fear, he went out, took his pot, and set it down in front of the door of the person who had just gone into the room next door. Then he returned into the room where I was and flattened himself against the door, howling wolf, wolf. I had the impression it was a propitiatory right. He was incapable of giving this poo to me. To some extent, he knew that I didn't exact it from him. He went to put it outside, knowing full well that it would be thrown out, hence destroyed. So I interpreted his right for him. Straight away, he went to look for the pot, put it back in the room beside me, hid it with a piece of paper, saying, have no more, have no more. So as not to be obliged to give it. Then he started to be aggressive towards me, as if giving him permission to take possession of himself through this poo which he had at his disposal, I had given him the possibility of being aggressive. Clearly, not being able to own up until then, he didn't have a sense of aggressivity, but only of auto-destruction, specifically when he attacked the other children. 
from that day on he no longer felt obliged to do his business in the session he used symbolic substitutes sand he was acutely confused as to his own self the contents of his body objects children and the adults who surrounded him his state of anxiety of agitation became more and more acute for the rest of the time he was becoming unbearable i would actually witness truly hectic sessions in which I had considerable difficulty intervening. That day, after having drunk a little milk, he spilled it on the floor, then threw sand into the wash basin, filled the feeding bottle with sand and water, peed in the pot, put sand in it. Then he shoveled up milk mixed with sand and water, added the lot to the pot, and placed the India rubber baby in the bottle on top of it, and entrusted the whole of it to me. Then he went to open the door and came back with fear written all over his face. He again took up the bottle which was in the pot and broke it, working feverishly on it until he had reduced it to little pieces. He then gathered them all carefully together and buried them into the sand in the pot. He was in such a state that I had to take him down feeling that I couldn't do anything for him anymore. He brought the pot along. A bit of sand fell on the ground, unleashing unbelievable panic in him. He had to gather up every last bit of sand, as if it was a piece of himself, and he howled, Wolf, wolf. He couldn't stand being put in a group. He couldn't stand any child coming close to his pot. He had to be put to bed in a state of extreme tension, which in a spectacular manner, was only relieved by a diuretic debacle, which he spread everywhere in his bed and on the walls with his hands. The whole of this scene was so pathetic, lived through with such anxiety, that I was very worried and I started to get a sense of the idea he had of himself. He gave it greater precision the next day, when I had to frustrate him, he ran to the window, opened it, and cried out, Wolf, wolf, and seeing his own image in the glass, he hid it, crying out, Wolf, wolf. That is the way Robert represented himself. He was the wolf. It was his own image that he hid or that he evoked with such intensity. This part into which he placed what comes into him and what comes out, the pee and the poo, then a human image, the doll, then the pieces of the bottle, it really was an image of himself, akin to that of the wolf, as the panic generated when a bit of sand fell on the floor testified. In sequence, and at the same time, he was all the elements that he put into the pot. He was just the series of objects through which he came into contact with daily life, symbols of the contents of his body. The sand is the symbol of feces, the water that of urine, the milk that of what enters his body. But the scene with the pot shows that he differentiated very little between these things. For him, all of these contents are united in the same feeling of permanent destruction of his body, which in opposition to these contents represents the container, and which he symbolized with the broken bottle, whose pieces were buried under these destructive contents. In the following phase, he exercised the wolf, 
I say exercise because this child gave me the impression of being possessed. Thanks to my permanent presence, he was able to exercise with a little of the milk he had drunk, the scenes from daily life which did him such harm. At that point, my interpretations above all tended to differentiate the contents of his body from the affective point of view. The milk is what one receives, poo is what one gives, and its value depends on the milk one has received. P is aggressive. Many sessions went on in this way. Just when he was peeing in the pot, he would inform me, not poo, it's pee. He was sorry. I reassured him in telling him that he received too little to be able to give something without destroying him. That reassured him. He could then go and empty the pot in the toilet. The emptying of the pot was surrounded with many protective rites. He started by emptying the urine into the sink in the toilet while letting the tarp run so as to be able to replace the urine with water. He filled the pot, letting it amply overflow as if a container only had an existence through its content and also had to overflow so as to contain it in its turn. There we have a syncretistic vision of being in time as container and contained, exactly like an intrauterine existence. Here he rediscovered this confused image that he had of himself. He emptied the pee while trying to catch it again, convinced that it was he who was leaving. He howled, wolf, and the pot only had a reality for him when full. My whole concern was to show him the reality of the pot, which was still there after having been emptied of his pee, just as he, Robert, was still there after having peed, and the tap wasn't washed away by the water which ran from it. On account of these interpretations and my continued presence, Robert progressively introduced a delay between emptying and filling, until the day when he was able to return triumphantly carrying an empty pot in his arms. He had quite clearly acquired the idea of the permanence of his body. His clothes were for him his container, and when he was stripped of them, it was certain death. The business of undressing was for him the occasion for genuine crisis, the most recent one having lasted three hours, during which the staff described him as possessed. He howled, wolf, running from one bedroom to the next, smearing the other children with feces that he found in the pots. It was only once he was tied up that he calmed down. The next day he came to the session, started to undress in an extreme state of anxiety, and completely naked climbed into the bed. It took three sessions before he was able to drink a little milk completely naked in the bed. He pointed to the window and the door and hit his image while howling, wolf. In parallel, in daily life, undressing was easy, but was followed by a deep depression. He started to sob, without reason, each evening, seeking comfort from the ward sister downstairs, going to sleep in her arms. At the end of this phase, he had exercised with me the emptying of the pot, as well as the undressing scene, through my continuing presence, which had turned milk into a constructive element. But driven by the necessity of building up a minimum, he hadn't touched on the past. He only counted on the present of everyday life 
as if he were deprived of memory. In the next phase, it was I who became the wolf. He made use of the little bit of construction he had succeeded in accomplishing to project onto me all the badness he had drunk, and in some way to rediscover his memory. He was thus progressively able to become aggressive. This was to turn tragic. Driven by the past, he had to be aggressive towards me, and yet at the same time, in the present, I was the one he needed. I had to reassure him by my interpretations, speak to him about the best which was forcing him to be aggressive, and assure him that it wouldn't cause me to disappear nor shift him from where he was, something he always took as a punishment. When he had been aggressive towards me, he would try to destroy himself. He would represent himself by the bottle and would try to break it, and would take it out of his hands because he wasn't in a fit state to cope with breaking it. He would then take up the thread of the session, and his aggressivity towards me continued. At that point, he made me play the role of his starving mother. He forced me to sit on a chair on which a mug of milk was set so that I would knock it over, thus depriving him of his good food. Then he started howling, wolf, took the cot and washed up and threw them out of the window. He turned against me and, with great violence, made me swallow dirty water while howling, wolf, wolf. Here, this feeding bottle stood for bad food and was a throwback to his separation from his mother, who had deprived him of food and to all the changes which he was made to suffer. In parallel, he conferred another aspect of the bad mother on me, the role of the one who leaves. One evening, he saw me leaving the institution. The next day, he reacted, even though he had seen me leave on other occasions without being capable of expressing the emotion that he must have felt. That day, he peed on me whilst in a highly aggressive and also anxious state. This scene was only the prologue to a final scene, which resulted in my being definitively burdened with all the bad things that had happened to him and in projecting onto me the wolf. So because I used to leave, I was made to swallow the bottle of dirty water and was on the receiving end of the aggressive pee. So I was the wolf. Robert separated himself from it during one session by shedding me in the toilets, then returned to the room where we had the sessions all alone climbed into the empty bed and started to moan. He could not call me, yet I did have to come back since I was the permanent person. I came back. Robert was stretched out, pathetic, his thumb now within an inch of his mouth. And for the first time in a session, he held out his arms to me and let himself be consoled. From this session on, the institution witnessed a total change in his behavior. I had the impression that he had exercised the wolf. From this point on, he no longer talked about it and could move on to the next phase, intrauterine regression, that is to say, the construction of his body, of the body eagle, note, English in the original, and note, which he hadn't been able to do up till then, to use the dialectic that he himself had always used, that of the contained container, Robert was obliged, in order to construct himself, to be my content, but had to make sure of his possession of me, that is to say, of his future container. He started this period by using a bucket full of water, the handle of which was made of rope, 
he absolutely could not stand this rope being attached to the two ends it had to hang on one side i had been struck by the fact that when i had had to tie the rope up again for carrying the bucket he had experienced pain that seemed almost physical one day he put the bucket full of water between his legs took the rope and brought its end up to his navel i then had the impression that the bucket was me and he was attaching himself to me with an umbilical cord then he overturned the contents of the bucket of water took all his clothes off and then lay down in the water in a fetal position curled up stretching himself out from time to time and going so far as opening and closing his mouth on the liquid just as a fetus drinks the amniotic fluid as the most recent american experience have shown i had the impression that this was how he was constructing himself exceedingly agitated at the beginning he became aware of a certain reality of pleasure and everything came to a climax in two key scenes enacted in an extraordinarily collected manner and with an astonishing completeness given his age and his general condition in the first of these scenes Robert, completely naked and facing me collected up the water in his cupped hands raised it to the level of his shoulders and let it run the length of his body he started afresh like this several times and then he said to me softly robert robert this baptism in water because it was a baptism given the collected manner in which he accomplished it was followed by a baptism in milk he started by playing in the water with more pleasure than contemplativeness then he took his glass of milk and drank it then he put the teeth back on and started running the milk from the feeding bottle the length of his body as it didn't flow fast enough he took the teeth off and started afresh making milk run over his chest his stomach and along his penis with an intense feeling of pleasure then he turned towards me showed me this penis taking it in his hand with an air of complete rapture then he drank some milk thus putting some both inside and outside him in such a way that the content was both contained and container at once rediscovering the same scene that he had enacted with the water in the subsequent phases he moved on to the stage of oral construction this stage is extremely difficult very complex First of all, he was four years old, and he was living through the most primitive of the stages. What is more, the other children that I then had in treatment in this institution were girls, which created a problem for him. Finally, Hobart's patterns, note English in the original, of behavior had not entirely disappeared and had a tendency to return whenever he encountered frustration. After his baptism by water and milk, Robert started to experience the symbiosis which characterizes the primitive mother-child relationship. But when the child actually lives through it, there is normally no problem of sexuality, at least in the direction newborn to the mother. Whereas here, there was one. Robert had to set up a symbiosis with the feminine mother, which thus presented him with the problem of castration. The problem was to get him to accept food without this entailing his castration. At first he experienced the symbiosis in a simple form. 
seated on my knees, he ate. Then he took my ring and my watch and put them on, or he took a pencil from my smock and broke it with his teeth. Then I interpreted it for him. This identification with the castrating phallic mother remained from then on within the plan of the past and was accompanied by a reactional aggressivity whose motivations changed over time. He now only broke the lead of his pencil to punish himself for this aggressivity. After that, he could drink milk from the bottle resting in my arms, but it was he who held the bottle. It was only later that he could cope with my holding the bottle as if the whole of the past forbade him from taking into him from me the contents of so essential an object. His desire for symbiosis was still in conflict with his past. That's why he opted for the expedient of giving himself the bottle. But as he acquired the experience by means of other foods, such as pap and cakes, that the food he received from me in the course of the symbiosis didn't make him into a girl, he could then accept it from me. He first tried to differentiate himself from me by sharing with me. He gave me everything to eat, saying, while touching himself, Robert, then touching me. Not Robert. I made great use of this in my interpretations to help him differentiate himself. The situation then ceased being only between him and me, and he brought in the little girls who I had in treatment. It was a castration problem since he knew that a little girl came up for sessions with me before him and after him. So the logic of emotions required that he turn himself into a girl since it was a girl who broke the symbiosis he needed with me. The situation was one of conflict. He played it out in different ways, being seated on the pot or else doing it standing up while showing himself to be aggressive. Robert was now capable of receiving and capable of giving. He gave me his poo without fear of being castrated by this gift. So we had got to a stage in the treatment that can be summarized as follows. The contents of his body are no longer destructive, but Robert is capable of expressing his aggressivity in peeing, standing up, without the existence and integrity of the container, that is to say his body, being put into question. The gazelle IQ had changed from 43 to 80, and on the Terman Merrill, he had an IQ of 75. The clinical picture had changed. His motor difficulties had disappeared, as well as the prognathism. With the other children, he had become friendly and often protective of the smaller ones. One could start to integrate him into the group activities. Only his language remained rudimentary, Robert never put together sentences, he only used keywords. Then I left on holiday. I was away for two months. On my return, he made a scene which showed the coexistence in him, both of patterns from the past and of the present construction. While I was away, his behavior had remained as it had been. What the separation meant to him, his fear of losing me, was expressed in the old way, but in a very rich fashion on account of what he had since acquired. When I returned, he emptied out, as if to destroy them, the milk, his pee, his poo, and took off his smock and threw it in the water. He thus destroyed his old contents in his old container, rediscovered through the trauma of my absence. 
The next day, overwhelmed by his psychological reaction, Robert expressed himself on the somatic plane, profuse diarrhea, vomiting, fainting. He emptied himself completely of his past image. Only my continuous presence could make the connection with a new image of himself, like a new birth. At that moment, he acquired a new image of himself. We saw him reenacting in the session ancient traumas we knew nothing of. Robert drank from the bottle, put the teeth in his ear, and then broke the bottle in a condition of acute violence. Now he could do it without the integrity of his own body suffering from it. He separated himself from the symbol of the bottle and could express himself through the bottle qua object. The session was so striking, he repeated it twice, that I made inquiries about what happened when he had had the entratomy at the age of five months. We then learned that in the ENT ward where he had been operated upon, he had not been given an anesthetic, and that throughout the painful operation, a bottle of sweetened water had been kept forced in his mouth. This traumatic episode clarified the image that Robert had constructed of the starving, paranoiac, dangerous mother, who certainly attacked him. Then the separation, a bottle held by force, making him swallow his cries. The force feedings with the tube, twenty-five moves in succession. I had the impression it was Robert's tragedy that all his oral sadistic fantasies had been realized in the actual events of his life. His fantasies had become reality. Lately, I have had to confront him with something real. I was away for a year, and I returned eight months pregnant. He saw me pregnant. He started playing with fantasies of the destruction of this child. I disappeared for the birth. While I was away, my husband took him into treatment, and he acted out the destruction of this child. When I returned, he saw me thin and childless, so he was convinced that his fantasies had become reality that he had killed the child, and hence that I was going to kill him. He has been extremely disturbed in the last fortnight, up until the day when he was able to tell me about it. Then and there, I confronted him with reality. I brought him my daughter in such a way that he would now be able to make the break. His level of agitation subsided instantly, and the next day, when I had him for a session, he started at last to demonstrate some jealousy. He was becoming attached to something living and not to death. This child had always remained at the stage in which fantasies are realities. That is what explains why his fantasies of intrauterine form had been reality in the treatment, so that he could perform an astonishing construction. If he had gone past this stage, I wouldn't have been able to have secured this construction of himself. As I was saying yesterday, I had the impression that this child had sunk under the real, that at the beginning of the treatment there was no symbolic function in him, still less an imaginary function. Lacan says, but he did have two words. Monsieur Hippolyte, I want to ask a question about the word wolf. Where did wolf come from? Mademoiselle Lefort. In children's homes, you often see nurses scaring them with a wolf. 
in the home where I had him in treatment one day, when the children were impossible to deal with, they were shut in the children's garden, and a nurse went outside to howl like a wolf so as to make them be good. Monsieur Hippolyte, it still has to be explained why fearing the wolf took hold in him, just as with so many other children. Mademoiselle Lefort, the wolf was quite clearly the devouring mother in part. Monsieur Hippolyte, do you think that the wolf is always the devouring mother? Mademoiselle Lefort, in children's stories, the wolf is always about to eat. At the oral sadistic stage, the child wishes to eat its mother and thinks that its mother is going to eat it. Its mother becomes the wolf. I think that that is probably its genesis, but I'm not sure. In this child's history, there are many things of which I am ignorant, which I wasn't able to find out about. When he wanted to be aggressive towards me, he didn't go on all fours, nor did he bark. At the moment, he does. Now he knows that he is human, but he needs from time to time to identify himself with an animal, just like a child of 18 months. And when he wants to be aggressive, he gets on all fours and goes, wow, wow, without the least anxiety. Then he stands up and carries on with the rest of the session. He can still only express his aggressivity at this stage. Monsieur Hippolyte. Yes, it's between swingen and bitswingen. Note, swingen and bitswingen are both often roughly translated as to overcome, to vanquish. Tsung is the term most often rendered in English by compulsion. Compare Tsung's neurose, Tsung's Vorstellung, obsessional neurosis, obsessional idea. End note. There is a world of difference between the word implying constraint and the one which doesn't. Constraint, Tsung, is the wolf who creates anxiety in him. And once the anxiety is overcome, Bitswingung, that's when he plays the wolf. Mademoiselle Lefort. Yes, I quite agree. Naturally, the wolf raises all the problems of symbolism. It isn't a function with a limit, since we are forced to search out its origin in a general symbolization. Why the wolf? We are not particularly familiar in this part of the world with this character. The fact that it is the wolf who is chosen to produce these effects ties us straight away to a broader function on the mythical, folkloric, religious, primitive plane. The wolf is part of a complete fellation which connects up with secret societies, with everything that implies in the way of initiation, either in the adoption of a totem or in the identification with a character. It is difficult to draw these distinctions in relation to such an elementary phenomenon, but I would like to draw your attention to the difference between the superego and the ego ideal in the determination of repression. I don't know if you have realized the following. Here we have two conceptions which seem to lead in exactly opposite directions. As soon as one brings them into play, in any kind of dialectic, in order to explain the behavior of a patient. The superego is constraining and the ego ideal exalting. These are things that one tends to gloss over because we move from one term to the other as if the two were synonymous. It is a question which is worth pursuing in relation to the transference relationship. When one looks for the basis of therapeutic action, 
one says that the subject identifies the analyst with his ego ideal or on the contrary with his superego and in the same text one substitutes one for the other in accordance with the unfolding of the demonstration without really explaining what the difference is Certainly, I will be led to examine the question of the superego. I should say from the start that if we don't limit ourselves to a blind mythical usage of this term, this keyword, this idol, the superego, is essentially located within the symbolic plane of speech, in contrast to the ego ideal. The superego is an imperative, as is indicated by common sense, and by the uses to which it is put. It is consonant with the register and the idea of the law, that is to say, with the totality of the system of language, insofar it defines the situation of man as such, that is to say, insofar as he is not just a biological individual. On the other hand, one should also emphasize as a counter to this, its senseless, blind character of pure imperativeness and simple tyranny. What path will allow us to bring these notions into a synthesis? The superego has a relation to the law and is at the same time a senseless law, going so far as to become a failure to recognize, ni connaissance, the law. That is always the way we see the superego acting in the neurotic. Isn't it because the morality of the neurotic is a senseless, destructive, purely oppressive, almost always anti-legal morality that it became necessary to elaborate on the function of the superego in analysis. The superego is at one and the same time the law and its destruction. As such, it is speech itself, the commandment of law insofar as nothing more than its root remains. The law is entirely reduced to something which cannot even be expressed, like the you must, which is speech deprived of all its meaning. It is in this sense that the superego ends up by being identified with only what is most devastating, most fascinating in the primitive experiences of the subject. It ends up being identified with what I call the ferocious figure, with the figures which we can link to primitive traumas the child has suffered, whatever these are. In this very special case, we see embodied there this function of language. We touch on it in its most reduced form, reduced down to a word whose meaning and significance for the child we are not even able to define, but which nonetheless ties him to the community of mankind. As you have quite aptly remarked, this isn't a wolf child who might have lived in a savage state, but a speaking child. And it is through this wolf that you had the possibility, right from the beginning, of establishing a dialogue. What is remarkable in this case is the moment when, after a scene which you described, the use of the word wolf disappeared. It is around this pivot of language of the relationship to this word, which for Robert is the summary of a law, that the turning point from the first to the second phase occurs. There then follows this extraordinary elaboration, brought to a close by this touching self-baptism when he utters his own Christian name. 
At that point, we come close to the fundamental relation in its most reduced form of man to language. It is extraordinarily moving. What questions do you still want to raise? Mademoiselle Lefort, what is the diagnosis? Well, there are some people who have already taken a stand on this. Lang, I've been told that you had said something on the subject yesterday evening, something which appeared to me to be interesting. I think the diagnosis you made is only analogical. By making a reference to the categories that exist in nosography, you uttered the word. Dr. Lang. Hallucinatory delirium. Note. The French term is delire, notoriously difficult to translate since it has a wider range than delirium. It has occupied an important place in French psychiatric terminology for well over a century. End note. One can always try to look for an analogy between relatively deep disturbances in the behavior of children and what we are familiar with in adults. And most often we talk about infantile schizophrenia when we don't quite know what is happening. An essential element is lacking here, needed in order to talk of schizophrenia, namely dissociation. There is no dissociation because there is scarcely any construction. It seemed to me reminiscent of certain forms of organization of hallucinatory delirium. I had great reservations yesterday evening because there is a margin between direct observation of the child at this age and what we know from our usual nosography. In this particular case, many things would have to be clarified. Lacan says, yes, that is how I understood what you had said when it was passed on to me. A hallucinatory delirium, by which you mean a chronic hallucinatory psychosis, has only one thing in common with what is happening in this subject, and that is this dimension, which Mademoiselle Lefort subtly highlighted, which is that this child lives only the real. If the word hallucination means something, it is this feeling of reality. In hallucination, there is something which the patient truly takes to be real. You know how much this remains a problem, even in a hallucinatory psychosis. In an adult chronic hallucinatory psychosis, there is a synthesis of the imaginary and the real, which is the entire problem of psychosis. Here, we find a secondary imaginary elaboration, which Mademoiselle Lefort has highlighted, which is literally non-inexistence in the nascent state. It's a long time since I have re-examined the case, and yet the last time we met, I had put before you the grand schema of the vase and the flowers, in which the flowers are imaginary, virtual, illusory, and the vase real, or inversely, because one can set up the apparatus the other way around. At this juncture, all I can do is point out to you the pertinence of this model, constructed around the relation between the contained flowers and the container phase. The container contained system, which I already placed in the foreground with the significance that I give to the mirror stage, is here seen being played out to the full and quite nakedly. We see the child behaving in accordance with the more or less mythical function of the container. And as Mademoiselle Lefort has noted, only being able to endure it being empty at the end. To be capable of enduring its emptiness is, in the end, to identify it as a truly human object, that is to say, an instrument capable of being detached from its function. And it is essential in so far as 
in the human world that is not only utility but also the tool. Note l'utile and l'utile. End note. That is to say, instruments which exist as things in their own right. Monsieur Hippolyte, universal. Dr. Lang, the way in which the wolf changes from being vertical to horizontal is rather delightful. It does seem to me precisely that the wolf of the beginning is lived through, Lacan says. It is neither him nor anyone else at the beginning, Dr. Lang. It's reality, Lacan says. No, I think that it is essentially speech reduced down to its core. It is neither him nor anyone else. He is clearly the wolf insofar as he says this very word, but the wolf is anything insofar as it can be named. Here you see the nodal stage of speech. Here the ego is completely chaotic. Speech has come to a halt, but starting with the wolf, he will be able to take his place and construct himself. Dr. Habag, I noticed the fact that there was a change at a particular moment when the child played with his excrement. He gave, transformed him, took sand and water. I think that it is the imaginary which he started to construct and reveal. He could already take a greater distance from the object, his excrement, and then he distanced himself further and further. I don't think that one can talk of the symbol in the sense in which you understand it. However, yesterday I had the impression that Mademoiselle Lefort talked about them as symbols. Lacan says, it's a difficult question. It is the one we are addressing here inasmuch as it may be the key to what we designate as the ego. What is the ego? These aren't homogeneous agencies. Some are realities, others are images, imaginary functions. The ego itself is one of them. This is what I would like to turn to before we leave. What mustn't be left out is what you described to us in such an absorbing way at the beginning, the motor activity of this child. This child seems to have suffered no lesion of the organic systems. What sort of motor behavior has he now? How are his grasping gestures? Mademoiselle Lefort, to be sure he no longer is as he was at the beginning. Lacan, at the beginning, as you have described him, when he wanted to reach an object, he could only grasp it in one complete gesture. If this gesture failed him, he had to start again from the beginning. So he is in control of visual adaptation, but he suffers from disturbances of his sense of distance. This wild child can always, like a well-organized animal, catch what he wishes. But if there is something wrong or lacking in the act, he can only correct it in doing the whole thing over again. Consequently, we can say that there doesn't seem to have been any deficiency or backwardness bearing on the pyramidal system in this child. But we are confronted with signs of failures in the functions of ego synthesis, in the sense in which we understand the ego in analytic theory. The lack of attention, the unarticulated agitation that you also observed at the beginning must also be linked to failures of the ego's functions. Besides, one should take note that, in certain respects, analytic theory goes so far as to make sleep 
a function of the ego. Mademoiselle Lefort. From the memorable day when he locked me up, his motor disturbances diminished, and this child, who neither slept nor dreamt, began to dream in the night and to call his mother in his dreams. That is what I was trying to get at, Lacan says. I am not overlooking the direct relation between the atypicality of his sleep and the anomalous character of his development, whose backwardness is to be placed precisely on the plane of the imaginary, on the plane of the ego, insofar as it is an imaginary function. This observation shows us that, from the backwardness of a given point in imaginary development, there ensues disturbances of certain functions, which are apparently of a lower level than what we may call the superstructural level. What gives this case its special interest is the relation between the strictly sensory-motor maturation and the function of imaginary mastery by the subject. That is the question. The point is to know to what extent it is this particular articulation which is involved in schizophrenia. According to our inclination, and the idea each of us has of schizophrenia, of its mechanism and of its fundamental source, we can include or exclude this case from the category of schizophrenic illness. It is clear that it isn't schizophrenia in the sense of a state, inasmuch as you have showed us its significance and its movement. But there is here a schizophrenic structure of the relation to the world and an entire set of phenomena that we could, if need be, bring into line with the catatonic set of phenomena. To be sure, Strictly speaking, there is no symptom of it, so that we can place the case, as Lang did, in any one given category, only in order to give it an approximate location. But some deficiencies, some failures in adaptation to the human, point towards something which later, analogically speaking, would present itself as a schizophrenia. I think that one can't say any more about it, except that it is what one calls an exemplary case. After all, we have no reason to think that the nosological categories have been there all along, awaiting us from eternity. As Peggy said, the little pegs always fit into the little holes, but there comes a time when the little pegs no longer correspond to the little holes. That it is a question of phenomena of a psychotic nature, more exactly of phenomena which may terminate in psychosis, seems indisputable to me, which doesn't mean that all psychoses have analogous beginnings. Leclerc, I'm asking you specifically to work out something for the next time from On Narcissism, an introduction, which is to be found in volume 4 of the collected papers or in volume 10 of the complete works. You'll see that what is at issue are the questions raised by the register of the imaginary which we are in the course of studying here. 10th of March, 1954.